Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And we are sometimes known to at least four people as the Batlin Bros. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we'll be looking at, in particular, Weird War Tales number 25. It's kind of a landmark issue. Mm -hmm. Made it to issue 25. And I think this one will be coming out because of our summer vacation schedule on July 4th. So how super patriotic is that? (laughs) There you go. This is just make your heart swell with pride right there when you hear that. (laughs) So before we get into the issue... Rich is going to hit you with not any retroactive history because we still don't have any, but we do have an Intel report. Indeed. Got to tell you, the best thing about this segment is that it makes me pull stories off the shelf I haven't read in years, like Common Foe, a five-issue miniseries published by Image Comics in 2005, written by Keith Giffen and Shannon Denton, art by Jean-Jacques Zielowski, I think. Uh, available as a collection since 2007. Amid the blood and chaos of the Battle of the Bulge, a battered squad of American soldiers and a platoon of German infantry do everything they can to rip each other to shreds. But to survive the night, the two enemies must come together and unite against an ancient evil hell-bent on destroying everything in its path. Now, I've always loved stories like this and scooped it up as, as it came out. For some reason, though, issue four was a year late and issue five was never released. And I had to buy the collection to find out how it all ended. I even asked Giffen about it at a con and he had no idea what the problem was. So whatever, it all got out eventually. Yep, the creators are always the last to know and the last to get paid too. So uh, before we dive into the issue and all that, we're going to take a short podcast promo break. When we get back, it's time for Weird War Tales number 25. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And we are back. And uh, we're taking a look at, as we mentioned a few times, Weird War Tales, number 25. And Rich, as his SOP here on the show, is going to hit you with the cover detail. Cover detail. Luis Dominguez. Of course. 20 cents. Of course. The red and white weird war tale sits on a black background at the top third of the cover. A 19th century French soldier sits against a tree, sketching the battlefield before him. At least five of his comrades lie dead around him. One is draped over a smoking cannon, and another clutches a sword. The eyes of two of the dead are still open. The sky and clouds are pink in the distance as the day ends, casting more bodies in the distance into shadow. Watching the sketcher on the cover's left, a white-robed death draws the Frenchman with skeletal hands. 
the Frenchman on paper is likewise skeletal. Cover date, May 1974, date of release, February 21st, 1974. No killjoy that I can see. Little CNC. I mean, I got a little, I got a lot of conflicting emotions here, actually. You know, the day is done after a hard battle, and the artiste sits on his ass all nice and relaxed, surrounded by his dead buddies, drawing without a care in the world. Death obviously has an eye in the sky, and there's a grim part of you, well, me anyway, that's kind of all good, jerk. Captain Evilheart? <laughs> You're so grim, Richie. So, first of all, the drawing is excellent, of course, as is the use of color and the overall design of yet another very effective silent cover image for this series. I like how Death's sketch is in red, as though it might be getting drawn in blood and as for the attitude of the artist it becomes more clear in the story spoilers but on the cover here i feel the expression on his face could be interpreted as having a certain sadness to it i think and lacking a camera documenting the savage aftermath of war is not necessarily an act of disrespect again just going on the cover image and one other thing i want to add that as i'm looking at the cover now as a little detail I like, the top of Death's head is poking above the letterbox for the image and going a little bit into the logo's territory. It just gives that little nice pop-out sense of, of depth. You know, Death giving a sense of depth. So I like touches <laughs> like that. Yeah, I like when people play with the design like that. And the logo looks awesome in this color red on the background here. Red, so white, and black. Yeah, I, I love it. So fantastic cover and it is one that totally reflects the content of a story inside so this is a banner one for me and speaking of the story inside we're going to take a look at the first actual story rich take it away black magic white death 10 pages script by george Castan, art by alfredo alcala all hail synopsis as we've already said it's the cover story French soldiers are overwhelmed by an attack by Haitian natives and are forced to retreat. After the battle, Marcel shows his buddy Jacques some of the magnificent drawings he's done as the wounded and dead around him are taken care of. One of their sergeants chew them out for having nothing better to do than to draw pictures while their comrades lie dead all around. Marcel doesn't even look up from his pad as he replies, We were not ordered to gather the dead, and they have no comrades of ours. We are artists! Not soldiers. We did not ask to come here. We were drafted and forced to come here by a little emperor. If we are still alive, when our tour of duty is over, our drawings will show the French people how stupid and evil is this war. They collect their things and walk away from the sergeants. Marcel and Jacques are inseparable and had been living together when conscripted. Entering the jungle, a native named Kwame sees them and signals Jacques. The two of them have a whispered conversation away from Marcel worries about Jacques consorting with the natives. He doesn't trust Kwame. Jacques had been given permission to witness a secret voodoo ceremony that night by the high priest, but he had to decline because they were on a night patrol that evening. Later, that same patrol is ambushed by the Haitians. Marcel doesn't want to fight and frantically looks for Jacques and sees him goes down with a spear in his shoulder. Trying to protect Jacques, Marcel doesn't see the native run up behind him and ram a knife into his back. Badly wounded, he calls Jacques to safety before passing out. When Marcel awakes, he's in Kwame's hut with Jacques. The entire patrol had been wiped out. Kwame had found them and treated their injuries. Marcel is puzzled. He'd been so close to death, but hardly feels any pain now. 
In the weeks and months that follow, someone in the camp starts playing tricks on him. Dead black roosters are repeatedly found in his bed. Jacques keeps a bat in a cage that was blessed by a voodoo priestess. When it escapes, it almost tears out Marcel's throat. Pretending to be asleep one night, Marcel feels Jacques cut a sample of his hair and slip out of their hut. Marcel's had enough. Under a full moon, he follows Jacques to Kwame's hut, where he hears them chanting. Peering in the window, Marcel sees Jacques in a trance, surrounded by voodoo charms. Poor Jacques. Somehow Kwame had gained power over him and was trying to get Jacques to kill him. Bursting into the hut, Marcel begins to strangle Kwame, who frantically tries to explain. Kwame dies as Jacques comes out of his trance, and he's horrified at what Marcel has done. I saved you from him. No longer will Kwame be able to cast his evil spells. But suddenly, Marcel begins to feel weak. He falls to his knees as the skin begins to dissolve off his body. You shouldn't have killed him, cher ami, Jacques cries. You were dead when I brought you here as the night of the battle. Kwame brought you back to life, and it was he that kept you alive through me. All these strange things I did to you were not meant to harm you. Kwame was teaching me how to protect you. Jacques falls to his knees beside the skeletal body of his friend. Perhaps I should have told you, but would you have believed me? Now it is too late for any magic to bring us back together. And yeah, I got no killjoy at all. You, you, what, what did you put in here? I was thinking it kind of tied in with a history minute that you just did a bit ago uh, with voodoo replacing disease for the reason Napoleon gave up on this war. Because <laughs> remember, like you were saying, like yeah, Napoleon had troops in this area. And yeah, yellow fever. Yellow fever was the reason over. he took off. Yeah. So they kind of make a big deal about how Napoleon was fighting a doomed war here. And it was, you know, in the story, it's voodoo. But really, it was yellow <laughs> fever. Yeah, exactly. See, the dog knows what I'm talking about. That all out of the way, I'll kick off the uh, comments and commendations. Here we have it, folks. As far as I can tell, this is the first openly gay couple in DC Comics history. This goes far beyond the subtleties, in my opinion, of coding or anything like that. Marcel and Jacques were living together when they were conscripted. You see the soldiers kind of doing the nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more about that. They are inseparable. They call each other share and share a me in a time when American audiences would probably think of that in Adam's family terms and so on. The other soldiers even tease Marcel for being worried about someone stealing Jacques away from him. And to put a disappointingly stereotypical point on it, there are panels where Jacques can only be described as being depicted with a literal limp wrist. Page two, panel three, page four, panel two. It's not the best of representation to be sure, but there's no way that these two were not being depicted as more than just platonic friends. Unfortunately, again, for the not so great representation part, they are depicted in contrast to my trying to save the guy on the cover of the issue. They are depicted as being pretty cold hearted about not even bothering to help fight and just drawing the destruction and death around them, like with with really not too much reverence or care. So they are sort of depicted as the jerk that Rich thought was sitting on the cover. So we also got that strike against any chance to portray this as positive representation. So that all out of the way, the story itself works really well for me. And I was even able to overcome the potential voodoo fatigue as a result, as we've been seeing voodoo a lot in these pages lately. Of course, our sympathies for these two are split. At least mine are. The war is unjust, but they are also being jerks about the whole thing. 
there's lots of great art in this story, of course. That last page really stood out to me, the whole page, from the multi-panel disintegration of Marcel to the words, the end, painted on the side of the cauldron in the final panel. Again, I'm a sucker for artists using the medium of comics in ways like that, like just actually having the end painted onto the cauldron surface. So I like this story. I, I thought it was interesting in many ways, and it, it didn't even, like I said, trigger the voodoo fatigue in me. So I know what you're thinking, listeners. What did Rich think? Actually, I was kind of thinking the same thing about Marcel and Jacques. It was just, you know, Max actually put it to paper before I did. Another voodoo story. What's that? Three in the last 10? Ah, the 70s. Where's the quicksand? I give Cash Dan credit here for actually using appropriate French phrases in the dialogue, although the Z used for the gets old and stereotypical. Marcel's death reminds me a bit of a few like scenes at the end of a couple of Indiana Jones movies. The Vietnam War was still so close in the rearview mirror that Saigon hadn't fallen yet. So I also have to wonder if Cash Dan isn't firing a not-so-subtle shot with some of Marcel's early dialogue. My favorite panel has to be the first one of the Haitians and French locked in close combat in the tall grass. Alcala's ghostly narrator, comical counterpoint, almost carries the page on his own, wearing a French uniform with WW on his hat. We discussed this from issue 19. He's holding a sad Napoleon voodoo doll with needles stuck in it, complete with a cap with an N on it. Foolish humans, I collect you all in the end. Yeah, just the the cartooning on that figure at the end was fantastic, where everything you said, like the WW, the N, the little voodoo doll. Again, I like it when the artists are having fun and are willing to just be a little playful in a book about death and war and horror, you know, so I love that touch. So people, I, I, I failed to commend Rich on his absolutely perfect French accent in that synopsis. I'm sure you all agree. So anyway, first story is over. We both dug it. And before we get to the second story, we run into, in this book, an early appearance of the letters page, our APO Weird War Tales section. Yeah, lots of hate for issue 20 here. John Elliott from New York, New York gets my nod. Dear Joe, wow, what a strange Cobra Weird War number 20 had. Those strange zombie types and skeleton hands up against a dynamic dawn sky. Sheesh, who colors those things anyway? Death Watch was trite. Neither the script nor the art showed any sort of originality. It was one of the worst jobs that Jack Olick has done for any of your weird mags. And even on a good day, Don Perlin is no super talent. Yeah, see, you, you don't talk bad about Don Perlin in front of the dogs, all right? Operation Voodoo, on the other hand, was a very good story. It used Weird War's best gimmick the use of strange places and times. Drake did a nice job on the script and Alcala's art is always a pleasure to look at. Death is a green man was an old plot, but well handled. I loved the roster board on page five with all the names of our favorite DC staffers. It's little touches like this that make comics fun. The bit with penicillin was great. The best of all, realistic. Well, over in the letters column, I'd like to take issue with your policy of symbolic covers. This issue's cover was only slightly symbolic, and it worked very well. Please try to incorporate some elements of the story slash stories in the issue into the cover. All in all, a fairly nice issue. Keep them coming. And Joe wrote back, the coloring on all DC covers is handled by other Tatiana Wood or Jack Adler, our two Shazam award-winning colorists. 
Weird War Tales number 20's cover was colored by Tatiana, who gets our Rainbow Cluster Award for pleasing you with it. Oh, isn't that special? Yeah, that, that little bit about the DC staffers, totally missed it. There's a photo of the flight board in the album. Alcala's name is partially hidden by the wing of the Spitfire model, so maybe I can be excused. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I normally catch, so I'm pretty embarrassed by that. I'll have to go back and check it out. <laughs> that's that's my gag, man, where I look at the little stupid things like that, and I completely miss that one. So, you know, I could read another letter here, but they're all kind of the same, and John Elliott's was probably the most nuanced. So I was not too inspired by the more or less one-note Weird War Tales number 20 dumping on display here. So I will call out this. There's a little note, a little box at the end of the letters page from the editor saying, Day after Doomsday update. We're hard at work on new episodes of this series, but please be patient. While we promise to have them ready soon, unforeseen problems are going to delay them a few issues. Thanks. To which I say, yeah, don't hurry on my account if the last examples were anything to go by. We, we don't need an update on Day after Doomsday. It's okay, Joe. Just... You don't have to do it. <laughs> well, I've looked ahead to the next issue, and you know, there's no day after doomsday yet. So <laughs> maybe it's, <laughs> it's not one issue out, so maybe it's two. So. And we'll see. So the APO Weird War Tales letters page has been covered. So now we're going to move on to the second full-length story in the issue. It is called The Unseen Warrior. It's 10 pages long. Script is by George Cashdan again, with art by favorite of the show, Alex Nino. A synopsis goes a little something like this. A completely bandaged man lies on a table in an operating room surrounded by doctors wondering if they should have told their patient what to expect. A sudden announcement informs them that American forces have entered the outskirts of Berlin. The fall of the city is imminent. It's every man for himself, and the doctors abandon their patient on the table. Eventually, yeah, yeah, eventually the bandaged man wakes up and is confused and angry about why he's been left alone. Hearing cannon fire, he decides to ditch the bandages, get some clothes, and escape. He's astonished to discover that he is invisible beneath the bandages. So that was the experiment they had performed on him. Seeing the Americans outside, he runs to strike a blow for the fatherland. In this state, I'm invincible. Perhaps I can turn the tide of the entire war. In the middle of fierce house-to-house fighting, a soldier's Thompson flies from his hands and turns against him and his comrades. Grenades levitate from the bodies of the dead Americans and fly into nearby tanks, destroying two of them. Laughter drifts over the carnage from an unknown source, and one of the dazed soldiers grabs a radio to warn headquarters. Two soldiers in a jeep receive the message. Don't laugh, but we have a confirmed, repeat, confirmed report of an invisible man harassing troops in your zone. A floating rifle kills them both before they can reply. Their bodies are pitched out and the driverless Jeep goes rampaging down the street, bowling over several Americans. But word is getting out. And as the Jeep comes under fire, the invisible man realizes he's become perhaps a little too bold. They can see him this way. At least they can see the Jeep. That's Big enough target. A wall of fire steers him toward a steel mill, the perfect place to hide. Inside, he addresses the morale-shattered workers. I call to you from Valhalla. Your Wehrmacht will need all the equipment you can produce when I and others like me turn back the invaders. Convinced that Odin is speaking to them, the German civilians return to their stations. But an American tank company rolls up and opens fire on the mill. 
The civilians flee over the Invisible Man's protests. The tanks fire randomly everywhere, and the Invisible Man laments that although he'd like to surrender, they can't see him or hear him over the sound of battle. He tries to hide behind a slag heap until the firing dies down, but a tank runs into it from the other side. <laughs> Knocking, she's, she didn't like the tank, man. <laughs> but a tank runs into it from the other side, knocking the pile into a cauldron filled with molten steel. A loud scream fills the air. Several men hear the cry and afterward empty the cauldron to confirm their suspicions. They're stunned to see a steel-encased corpse resting at the bottom of the cauldron. As the body is carried to its final resting place, a GI remarks, if the Nazis had a few more like this one, they would have been the ones retreating. So there we go. We got we got a, an, an unseen warrior, an invisible man, and we got a little killjoy over here. Indeed, we do. First and foremost, American forces never fought for Berlin. That honor went to the Soviets. And the fact that cost them over 80,000 killed to take it might be the biggest reason why we let them have it. Of course, the Germans fought the Soviets harder than they would have fought the Western allies because they knew the retribution that was coming their way was going to be horrific. So who knows? And I do wonder a bit about the Pompeii-esque remains in the cauldron. Molten steel is about 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit, and cremation of human remains takes place between 14 and 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's close to a 1,000 degrees difference between the two. I have to doubt there would be anything identifiable left behind, but honestly, I'm just guessing. See, invisibility bends light, and heat is partially light. So, I don't know, comic, comic book science. <laughs> so... Comments and commendations for this story right here. I'll kick it off. Uh, in my opinion, this was a very cool twist on the super soldier type story and mashing it up with a classic horror slash sci-fi figure really fits this series theme perfectly. You got Captain America mixed with the Invisible Man and, and, and like what better book than Weird War Tales to have this story in. I also liked how pragmatic the Invisible Soldier was, even as he was reveling in his power. Driving the Jeep was a mistake and how he recognized that he couldn't take a whole army by himself and so on. So for once, the mad super soldier from the enemy side isn't stupid. <laughs> he had some brains in him. The art's great, of course, but I will call out what I felt was a shaky moment of poor visual storytelling at a crucial moment in the plot. The transition of the slag heap into the cauldron with the unseen soldier hiding inside of it relied far more on the dialogue to explain what was happening than it should have. Or so I thought. And I, I kept looking at it a few times and I'm like, it's not just me. It's it, Nino has kind of a sketchy style. And for the most part, I love it. But sometimes you, you got to dial in the clarity. So I was able to figure out what went on, of course, but it was mostly the writers helping me out. So for my spotlights, I'm going to cheat and pick two panels that stood out as unusual stylistic choices for Nino to me. Page four, panel four, the soldier in the foreground with the impressive choppers looks like he has a serious case of Richard Corbin face. Like it, it's, I really thought, did Richard Corbin help draw a panel in this story? It's just such a, a standout to me. And then on page six, panel four, another soldier in another foreground has very distinct parallel horizontal lines used as part of the shading on his face that I really liked. Again, I haven't seen those kinds of things happen with Nino's art yet in this series, and uh, I really liked him. So let's find out what Rich has to say. 
Cue the negative man unknown soldier comparisons for Max and I. I just read the original 1897 The Invisible Man novel by H.G. Wells earlier this year. So this was actually a timeless story. Some great imagery of floating weapons turning on their owners. My favorite panels are on page three when he's taking the bandages off and he discovers he's invisible. The floating head ones are especially cool. In this state... I'm invincible. Oh, you so are, pal, as we found out. I also dig page five, panel six, where the invisible soldier shoots an American soldier. The panel is all in red, except for the American's eyes and teeth. Is it muzzle flash, blood, or a simple representation of violence? I really love that panel, too. I saw that you had taken it in the script, but uh, talk about using coloring for a special effect and, and, again, using the comics medium in ways that you know, film generally doesn't. I like that one too. And I thought for a minute, the guy was going to run around with his head still wrapped in bandages. And I'm like, well, this is going to be a short story. (laughs) I'm going to see this head coming at him. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think second story out of the way here. Um, Again, really good one. The art, everything just really fun and like fitting this series theme to a T. So let's see if we can keep it going this little winning streak we have here with this issue spotlighted ads. Here's a hint, folks. It does. It totally does. I go to the well for a third time because these toys are so freaking cool. Step aside, Jack Sparrow. Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion. Zap action scene kits from NPC have arrived in another double page centerfold. Great new scene kits with Zap action. Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion. Welcome to the Walt Disney Haunted Mansion, the most famous of haunted mansions featured at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Now you can create your own haunted mansion scenes in one fault scale, build exciting and detailed models, touch a lever and release zap action. Your models perform funny and surprising movements never before seen in model kits. Play it again, Sam. A magnificent model scene with double zap action. It's the famous Disney organist ready to fill the mansion with a haunting refrain. Zap action! His hands come down on the keys and double zap action! Up pops the long lost mummy. Grave robber's reward. This happy go lucky, unsuspecting fellow thinks he's discovered buried treasure just six feet down. The lookout from behind uplifts the lid and zap action! Out leaps the gruesome grabber, reaching out with cold, clammy hands. I mean, my God, man. I mean, <laughs> this stuff is just phenomenal. I actually had to go on eBay and see if I could find any of this stuff. I couldn't find any originals, but the model company Polar Lights apparently got the licensing or ripped these off under their Haunted Manor banner for about 28 bucks. Play it again, Tom, Grave Robber's Demise, Fly to the Vampire and Escape from the Dungeon. They glow in the dark too. But honestly... They don't look half bad. Yeah, man. I'll take uh, sketchy ripoffs if they're, you know, new and functional and not 300 bucks. It's fine with me. (laughs) So (laughs) I knew Rich would take the Zap Action ad, as is his right. He has become the Zap Action spokesman for the Weird Warriors podcast. So I'll skip the usual sell crap to your friends and neighbors until you have none left of either of those things. And the learn some self-defense, you human punching bag ads. And instead, I'll focus on a good old fashioned house ad. In between pages four and five of the first story, there's an ad for DC 100 page specials. 
I got my hands on many of these at garage sales as a kid, and I was always really psyched to find one. There were always some new stories in these, but it was the older reprints that I really liked. These were comics from a bygone time, some from before my own parents were born. They had some golden age stuff in these 100-page specials. Before the days of readily available collections or online digital archive services like DC Unlimited, which I'm a member of, these things were priceless to me as a kid. And, and this ad in particular, what, the, what it features here, if you don't have the issue on hand, folks, it's got a 100-page special. These are 60 cents each. There was a previous series that was 50 cents each. So this is the second series of, of, of these 100-page specials. We got the, with one magic word, Shazam, the original Captain Marvel. So they were still brave enough to put Captain Marvel Marvel on the cover, even though they had to use Shazam as the title, they were still trying to get away with it there. So good on them. We've got Superboy starring the Legion of Superheroes, a absolute favorite title of mine. I have several hardcover collections in this house of books I already paid for as a kid. So, so that's a huge favorite of mine. We got a Justice League of America. Uh, special that you can see them fighting Starro in their first appearance as a team. So that story's in there. And then one that I didn't get as a kid, but I would love to get a hold of now. It's the 100-page special for Have You the Nerve to Face the Unexpected? And it's got Who Will Kill Gigantus? It's a T-Rex with a tank in its mouth. It's wreaking havoc on the Capitol. You've got an abominable snowman. You've got some thing peeking through somebody's window. It's, I need this book. I got to find it somehow. DC, I'm a member. Digitize this thing for me, please. So that that ad was all about it for me. I, I love these big 100-page specials. Batman family, all that stuff where they would just cram in tons of reprints. I did not feel cheated as a kid because, like I said, I wasn't alive when all these reprinted stories were published. So that's just how I learned the history of, of DC Comics. So that's my ad, man. I, I could go on about that stuff for another hour or so. So uh, before I do go on for another hour about the 100-page specials, we... We'll jump on into our section we like to call God in the Last Words. And looks like I'm first in the script. So last words, first words. I enjoyed both of these stories. And I was, as I pointed out above, especially intrigued by the not-so-subtle barely subtext present in the opener, which I do feel is an historic precedent and, and wasn't as bad as I would have thought the way they handled it. You know, they could be any two jerks, really, but the, the message is there, I feel. So, but I'd have to hand the crown to the Unseen Warrior here. Just barely edges out the first story for me, but a heck of a solid issue, in my opinion, for sure. Yeah, I'm getting a little voodooed out, so almost by default, I, too, have to go with Unseen Warrior for the win. Got great ads and letters page. Intriguing cover that drew a bit of an emotional response from me. This was solid. Really, like when you hit an issue like 25 or 50, like in comics, it tends to be these increments of 25, like 25, 50, 75, 100th issue, all that. You want something special or at least really good to fill that spot, and they managed to pull it off. So speaking of opinions about issues and whether they pulled it off, we're going to go over to our dead letter office section where um, we're going to see what our listeners thought of an episode we recorded previously. First of all, though, I'm going to mention over here in the Dead Letter office that you can mosey on over to redbubble.com. You can deploy over to redbubble.com. Whatever you want to do, get yourselves over there and buy some merch. 
buy some merchandise with the Weird Warriors podcast logo on it. It's, it's the Weird Warriors PX. <laughs> yeah, Weird Warriors PX. There we go. See, I, I would have never come up with that. See, people. Well, well now they call it the exchange. So. Yeah, the Weird Warriors <laughs> podcast exchange. So there we are. So get over there. Get our awesome logo designed and drawn by the also awesome Bill Walco. Go, go check him out, folks. He's got a, a, an online strip called The Hero Business, which is ending, but he does a ton of other stuff. Find him on DeviantArt. The guy has just an incredibly cool cartoony style. You'll dig it. You can see how good he is in our logo. So go to redbubble.com, buy the stuff. If we actually get any money from it, it's just going to go to our hosting services anyway. Um, or, you know, Rich is going to buy diamond encrusted sunglasses or something. I don't know. So that's me. That's you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that's your style, man. That's how you roll. <laughs> you got the whole like uh, Elton John thing going on with the, um, the diamond shades. So this edition of the Dead Letter Office is going to talk about, as I've forgotten to mention in the last few Dead Letter Offices, this one focuses on episode 24, where we covered Weird War Tales number 21. I'll try not to forget that in the future. Over on Twitter, we got some shout outs and likes and stuff like that from Wayne Burroughs. We got Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Mark Davis at GE Comics Group. And I got to plug him because he's, he, he's the head founder and main writer for Golden Era Comics, awesome independent comics company that he started. So Mark Davis at GE Comics Group, go check him out. We got Jeremy Floyd. We have The Telltale Mind at The Telltale Mind, who also does a really good comics and pop culture blog that I, that I follow. The Relatively Geeky Podcast Network stopped by. A uh, fairly new follower here. What's Shaken with Shaner at Shaken Shaner on Twitter? Uh, stop by to say hey. Chris Lydon and our good buddy Doc Strange at Billy Delicious on Twitter also stop by to say hey. Over on Facebook, home of the Weird Warriors podcast Facebook page, where Rich does a ton of work for you guys and uh, tries to entertain you as hard as he can and much harder than i try so <laughs> over on well, it's a high bar folks let's just yeah it's, it's a real high <laughs> bar like you know it's you got to stretch a whole couple of inches up there so <laughs> facebook <laughs> had visitations from such luminaries as david Steele from the earth 2 podcast ken boutillier luke ed that's luke edd Michael Stewart, that's our buddy Mike Stewart from the Save for Half role-playing game podcast, which is awesome. And Mike has also written a ton of stuff for uh, the role-playing game industry. Uh, too many books for me to note right here, but he knows what he's talking about, folks. We got Peter Watson also from the Earth 2 podcast, Richard Field, our good buddy Herschel Mimis, and Billy D coming over on Facebook, you know, moonlighting on Twitter there, coming by to say hey. And now we had some decent conversation going over on Facebook. So I'm going to make it Rich's job to read it to you guys because he was honestly the one doing most of the talking back with people. So here you go. Indeed. Uh, Tim DeForest reached out for, to us first, uh, talking about that time travel story to kill Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, he added uh, some killjoys of his own. He says, another loophole to the story. Shouldn't the protagonist's pistol also have returned to the present after the one hour was up? An extra page of well-written techno babble to explain how time travel works in the story might have made the story seem a little more logical, but that would have meant a page of expiratory dialogue without any action. It might be a case where story logic needed to take a backseat to fast pacing. And as I already said, I responded, damn, kill choice, left or right. QC is slipping early in the run. Martin Gray weighed in with great episode. 
I love the Frank Robbins art. It's really amazing. Tim came back to uh, came back at us talking about, hey, I bought Plop, though not from a comic mobile. It was a fun comic. And then we just went back and forth. So Plop wasn't a flop. And he was like, I would hop when I bought my Plop. But double like, doo-wop, doo-wop. <laughs> We're just going back and forth. Tim also came back to say, if the mission in One Hour to Kill would have been successful, I wonder what sort of world protagonist would have returned to. Would he have discovered World War II being fought with muskets? Since history, at least since the American Civil War, would have played out very differently, would he have found a completely alien political landscape? Would airplanes have still been invented, if but not equipped with machine guns? And you always love, love, have to love rabbit holes like that. And I responded, uh, as a historian, one of my guilty pleasures is alternate history. What could or should have happened if one thing changed? I have a shelf of books by Harry Turtle Dove and Robert Conroy. It's probably why time travel is such an interesting topic. And Tim responds, I enjoy Turtle Dove's Guns of the South enormously, as well as his series about aliens invading during World War II. Yeah, I didn't pick that one up. <laughs> Too far outside my wheelhouse. He hadn't read anything. You're going to get time. plenty of it here, though. <laughs> So then um, Michael Stewart came in. It's a great show, by the way. How is Da Vinci speaking English? So it's like, yep, that's another missed one. <laughs> Tim's like, well, maybe the soldier spoke Italian. And you responded with, well, he was a Renaissance man after all. So usually I'm the one that, yeah, usually I am the one that catches the, uh, yeah, it's amazing, you know, that that uh, 8,000 year old Viking god spoke, you know, spoke English, right? But oh well. Yeah, it's the Star Trek convenience universal translator plot device. Like we're we're <laughs> you know we don't want to say like the X Men used to do like Chris Claremont was famous for putting all the people's dialogue in parentheses when they were speaking another language and there'd be a note saying translated from the Italian or whatever and it's like yeah yeah we get it so eh otherwise yeah that story would have been like the American bursts into the room and just babbles a bunch of stuff at Da Vinci and Da Vinci's you know like babbles back in Italian and then you know that would have been fun to read so and I should mention people Tim DeForest is not just a really cool commentator on the Facebook page and a good fan of our show he also has an awesome blog you can go to it at comicsradio.blogspot.com he covers comics old time radio and other cool stuff it is an awesome read and an awesome listen because he will post episodes of as it says old time radio shows on the blog and you can just listen to them while you're on a lunch break at work or whatever it's it's a great one to follow so that's that. I, I just want to pimp that as many times as I can remember to, because it is a super fun one. So on Rich's Facebook photo album for this episode that we're talking about, we had likes from Jack Allen, me, Richard Field, Herschel Mimis, Luke Ed, Brian Matthews, our buddy Bill Mooney, and Billy D and Peter Watson as well. So the Facebook photo albums, they're popular for a reason, people. Rich puts a ton of stuff in there. And pretty much if we mention it on the show, you're going to see a picture of it in the album. So you have some visual reference because we know these issues are hard to come by. So over on Gmail, we got two new emails about this episode, and I'm going to let Rich take the first one. Max and Rich, just listened to episode 23 this morning, covering Weird War Tales number 20. As always, I enjoyed you guys' ability to tell the stories in a way that I get a very vivid sense of the tale as presented in the comic. Comics podcasters do not always hit the mark with their synopses, either containing too much minutiae or lacking in the meaningful detail. I think both of you strike a good balance, especially with these shorter anthology tales. 
This particular issue, I liked the cover story. The use of voodoo and the twist ending definitely gave me an Alf Fieldstein EC Comics vibe, which is not a complaint. I also appreciated Rich's history minute about the rebellion in Haiti. I have taken something of an academic interest in Central America and the Caribbean as part of a desire to learn more about North America in general over the last few years. So Rich's commentary about the successful revolt in Haiti has made me interested in learning more. Welcome. Thanks for name checking me in the retroactive history section. I swear I was not trying to put myself over or bury anyone else. I just remember the GI robot from the incredible showcase presents the war that time forgot collection, which mentioned the second wave of pirates of the Caribbean model kits with zap action. These kits are from before my time, but I can say that they are in fact quite cool. My father has at least a few of these in his collection and they display rather nicely. I imagine they do. They also look good in their boxes if you are not into modeling. Also a good fit for this issue given the cover story set in Haiti. Indeed, I said that very thing. Right at the end of the episode, you both joked about covering a DC romance comic. I would gladly cover a DC romance comic any day of the week because they quite frequently have really, really great artwork. In February, we observed hashtag romance comics month. For that event, I have been reading from Showcase Presents Young Love, the lead strip in that title at the point it is collected is Mary Robin RN, a hospital soap opera with art by Big John Romita. Ooh, hot diggity daffodil do these strips look amazing. I got to remember that one. <laughs> War comics, mystery horror comics, and romance comics all occupy a similar space in the American's comic scene, given that those three were the most popular and longest lasting anthology books here in the States. While superhero anthologies were definitely around the golden age and were the de facto format in the UK for many decades, in the US it has become the genre books which carried that anthology format forward. And I think the American comic scene is all the better for it. That's just my take. I will stop freestyling now. Thanks again for the episode and looking forward to the next one. Make war no more, Luke, Jack, and Eddie. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. We're glad we are exceeding your expectations and that ours were so low. <laughs> yeah, and as you guys know, Luke is the host of a favorite of mine, the Earth Destruction Directive, and he also co-hosts the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. Like, that doesn't sound like it's up my alley, right? Come on. And then get back to the wrestling. I know we got a lot of wrestling fans out there uh, on Twitter and whatnot, because I see the posts and I don't know what you guys are talking about. So he hosts what I'm assuming is a great wrestling podcast because everything else Luke does is great. So, oh, and I should mention, I did tell Luke, I did cop in my response to him on Gmail that Rich writes all the synopses because he's reading ahead and he also isn't going to wait for me to write. So I, I read the books and I come in and I do my C&C, but the synopsis is sitting there written for me because Rich ain't going to wait around for that to happen. So all I, the do, I, I do about 75% of the work scripts so yeah <laughs> yeah man I'm, I'm pulling a tom sawyer on rich here you know for for really this entire project so <laughs> oh, if, you, if you want the project to go forward somebody has to do the work right yeah, yeah and i know just who to call <laughs> so the second email we got over at the gmail address weird warriors podcast at gmail.com starts out Max and rich i enjoyed the podcast as always this was another amazing cover that i hoped would be in the book but alas it was not to be 
I love the medieval skeleton knights. One Hour to Kill was a decent story with a well-trod trope of trying to go into the past and prevent some disaster or negative event or person from causing evil in the world. It felt to me like it took a while for the story to get up and running. I also was surprised to have death narrating throughout the story versus an introductory statement and an ending conclusion. The ending did feel somewhat predictable. When he lost the gun, I knew it was over. It reminded me of, yes, and this is Jason Zeller, folks, so you know where we're going, another Twilight Zone episode. It is called No Time Like the Past, and it is the story of a man trying to get back in time, and three times he tries to prevent terrible events from happening. First, he desperately tries to get people to evacuate Hiroshima, Japan, or Hiroshima, Japan? I don't know. There's probably one right way to say it. Before the atomic bomb is dropped, but no one believes him. The second trip, he tries to assassinate Hitler. It's always on the checklist for time travelers, people. But he's interrupted. And the third trip, he tries to prevent the sinking of the Lusitania in 1915, but is again unsuccessful. Needless to say, all three trips result in failure, just like in this weird war tale story. And it makes you wonder if the past can in fact be changed, or if you become a part of the thing you are trying to prevent. And I told him, yeah, that's a very common trope is that you can't change the past. You are just part of the past because you went back into the past. So the past you remembered happened because you were there. Just no one wrote your name down. So he says, when death took a hand was my favorite of the two stories. I do like the story of someone, especially a, stol- especially a soldier sticking around after death to help prevent his buddies from the same fate by either helping them in battle or leading them to a safe route out of danger. Definitely a much better soldier than the previous Weird War Tales issue of the coward soldier running from the fight. I can't quite identify the issue, but the art, though competent, felt hard to look at sometimes. And this seemed to be the case for both stories. I'm gonna let that slide, Jason, because we're talking about, you know, some Frank Robbins in the first story. So since you are the Binge Listener Award founder, I'm gonna let that go. So behind the scenes at the DC Comic World had a cool article talking about the Comic Mobile, a mobile vehicle, like an ice cream truck, going into local neighborhoods and selling comics where people live. What a cool concept. I really wish this had taken off. I like the idea of hearing a musical van coming down my street selling me some great comics, like Plop. He didn't say that, but I had to throw that in there. I like the quote from the article that says, our ultimate goal is to make sure that every adult and child who wants comic magazines can find them. Thanks, Rich, for digging up the history and ultimately the demise of the comic mobile. Take care, gentlemen. That's stretching the point right there. Jason Zeller, who is, as I mentioned, the founder and so far sole holder of the Binge Listener Award for the show. So that's our dead letter office. We really are... Like, I'm blown away by how much feedback and attention we're getting. Uh, The Dead Letter Office, I thought, would just be an afterthought. It would be like, hey, Rich and I liked our own episode. So that out of the way, Dead Letter Office closes. We're drawing near to the end of another episode of the show, issue 25 of the series. But that's not all, folks. We're not stopping there. Rich is going to hit you with the teaser for the next episode. Surprise! You're being redeployed! our first ever scheduling change. We have received so much positive feedback on our review from Weird War Tales number one from 1997 that we're going to start doing the more modern issues more regularly. So tune in next time for Weird War Tales number two from 1997. Got some big shoes to fill from issue number one, but hey, we got Sam Glansman and Joe Lansdale in the house. So my expectations are high. 
Yeah, I'm thinking that won't be a letdown, and I can't wait. That's going to be such a fun one, and people love that miniseries. Even people who didn't hear about it, I think like it being um being more modern, it, it touched some more recent nerves with people, just with the the content and the subject matter. So it's going to be great. You know, some people have been surprised. They're all like, there, there was a there was a reboot in the, in the late '90s. Really, people like going to eBay and looking for it and everything. And, and this that's the other thing I mentioned from previous episodes is that when I went to Sam's house, I got to see like original art, concept art for the story that's in this issue. So yeah, there will be for the album for that episode. There will be you know photos of the original art and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, we we live a strange and surreal life these days, man. So <laughs> just yeah, I can't wait to to cover this one. So until next time, people, we are the Weird Warriors. We are the Batlin Bros. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast. I'm Max. He's Rich, and we promise to make war. No more.